Hi, welcome to the Period McMaster podcast for a brand new season where we talk all about periods and speak with a lineup of amazing guests on our show. From menstrual cycles to systematic barriers, current news, and more, we uncover the underlying realities of period poverty. Let's move right into the show. Hello, welcome to our third table talk with Period. Period is a McMaster chapter that's part of Period National, an organization that aims to um, improve awareness about menstrual inequalities and accessibility of menstrual health products around the our community. And we like to uphold three up pillars, service, advocacy, and education. And we also have a special guest, guest today, um, Alexa from the Indigenous <laughs> Health Movement. Sorry about that. If you'd like to introduce yourself and like, your organization, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name's Alexa Brzezowski. Um, I am from New Channel the Nation, um, from a house it, and the reservation is just north of Victoria, BC. If anyone here is familiar with the area, it's actually just north of Tofino, which is a really big um, like surfing area. A lot of people go there to surf. Um, I am the community representative for IHM, which is the Indigenous Health Movement, but exciting news, the soon-to-be co-president. So next year, I will be taking on the role of the co-president. This is definitely an interesting opportunity for me as recently within the last three years, I've been connecting with my Indigenous identity, definitely with the help of McMaster and McMaster's Indigenous Student Services. Um, I grew up very, um, I guess you could say I grew up very privileged. I grew up middle class in the suburbs in a town that um, really didn't have any other Indigenous people. I didn't know one other Indigenous people until, sorry, Indigenous person until coming to McMaster um, besides my family. Um, And I do have uh, very pale skin. My mother's Indigenous. My father is Macedonian, which is where the last name comes from. Um, so I definitely use, uh, my white privilege as a way to amplify racialized voices. Um, I'm an activist in many different areas, whether that be, um, in feminism, I'm currently studying health, health and society with a minor, minor in sustainability. However, I really want to go into midwifery afterwards and women's health and advocacy is very important to me as long as, as well as uh, sustainability and advocating for the earth. Um, I've also done a lot of activism in um, Black Lives Matter and March for Black Lives Hamilton. Um, And um, within the last few years, being Indigenous has definitely shifted from being a fun fact about myself to a whole identity that uh, really thrives through discussions with elders and new practices that I've taken up, such as beating and smudging. Um, A little bit more about IHM though, we are a group at McMaster that uh, educates students and community members. Uh, However, more more recently, it has been not only McMaster community members and uh, students, but uh, it's been a little more worldwide because we've been able to do everything over Zoom, obviously due to the pandemic. Um, But we educate those interested (laughs) on topics surrounding Indigenous health. And our main goal is initiating reconciliation in these areas. Um, So we do that through planning learning circles and community events. Our most recent learning circle was a uh, 
beading circle where we did beaded hoops. And that was really fun. That was led by one of our wonderful exec members, uh, Catherine. Um, and we also hold an annual conference. So this year it was on anti-Indigenous racism, kind of to suit uh, the political climate that's going on currently. We wanted to discuss anti-Indigenous racism in the healthcare system and just in healthcare in general. So we had people in the community speak, um, like Indigenous midwives, to uh, either students or healthcare providers to hopefully educate more on these issues. Thanks so much. You shared a lot. I really liked all of that. I'm glad. Congratulations that you're going to be co-press soon. Thank you. <laughs> um, we want to talk about your experience in the Indigenous community and more about menstruation. Um, do you have any experiences that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I definitely think this is an interesting opportunity for me as I grew up obviously not near my reservation. I didn't grow up around other Indigenous family besides my mother and uh, my aunt lives here as well. Um, however, I do have a lot of experiences um, and stories through friends and through um, people that do live on the reserve and everything. It's kind of difficult to um, exactly share the Indigenous the indigenous experience of menstruation because there's so many diversities obviously um when we speak about indigenous people we don't just speak about in canada it's all throughout the americas and everything so i have friends that are indigenous to mexico i have friends that are indigenous um to like the dakotas and everything and everyone has very very different experiences um particularly in Canada, I'm most familiar with the disparities that have to do with not having any access to clean water or um, access to stores that will sell menstruating products and stores that do often put either, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the pink tax. Um, they'll put the pink tax on it, which is um, pricing things up, uh, pricing specific products up that have to do with uh, feminine hygiene or just anything that they can slap the the phrase women's blank on so if it's a woman's razor it's going to be you know 80 percent more or whatever it is um but there's definitely um an a, a lack of access to clean water to um grocery stores i know i get tampons from grocery stores and stuff so that's where i'm mainly going to go um but a, a very good documentary, I think, if you're interested to watch, is called First Contact. And they talk about the disparities of um, access to food, access to clean water and stuff. Um, and they kind of go into how prices really hike up when you get to the northern Indigenous communities. I really like how you brought up um, all the other aspects, like other than just the fact that um, access to period products um, can be limited in Indigenous communities, but we also have to be conscious of things like um, water and uh, food that can be inaccessible in these communities as well, which obviously affects our health and menstrual health in general. Um, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. 
But um, I'm just kind of curious to know, uh, you did mention about the diversity in indigenous communities, and that's definitely important for us to recognize when we're having these conversations. Um, so just out of curiosity, um, what's your experience been like in like, um, in terms of your indigenous identity um, and connecting with your community? Um, and if you're able to talk to us a little bit about the community that you uh, belong to? Yeah. yeah. So um, me personally, I am from New Channels the Nation, so unfortunately I am not able to visit British Columbia as often as I want to. However, I definitely connect with the Indigenous community at McMaster a lot more because they're kind of like my Ontario home as of right now. I grew up in Ontario, I was born in Ontario, um, so unfortunately I didn't get to grow up with my um, band and with my uh, other family members and stuff that still do live in BC. However, um, as for uh, my menstruation and my health regarding menstruation, I've definitely had um, a unique experience because I grew up in an area that I had access to tampons and whatever I needed really um, and I had parents that could afford to spend whatever it was, maybe $18 on a box of tampons um, for the month that would last me a month. But I know people um, from the Lakotas, or sorry, from the Dakotas, who are specifically Lakota, um, and that $20 a month would completely bankrupt them. And that $20 a month, they would need to put towards something more like food or something completely different. And um, I definitely had a, a different experience that cannot speak for all Indigenous people. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really, it's really like interesting and amazing to hear like your, your experience and your, you know, knowledge about the matter. And I guess just, you know, on a different side of it, um, thinking about education, um, we were wondering, in your opinion, um, if you think there's adequate access to sex and health education within, you know, different indigenous communities, obviously we don't want to generalize, but in your opinion and from what you know. Yeah, so I honestly think this is actually a very easy question. Even without generalizing, I don't believe there's adequate sex education in any community in Canada. So what, like whether that be in all of Ontario, all of all of Canada in general, I really don't think there's adequate sex education. Um, I went to an elementary school, obviously an officer in Ontario, that basically promoted shame in period education. We were split up into the boys and the girls for the entire day. The girls went into one classroom, the boys went into another classroom. And um, the entire time they were basically reminding the girls, like, not tell the boys what we're learning about, remember like we're gonna hide these products and everything um we did have teachers that had uh like little baskets of period products just in case obviously we we're at such a young age um in elementary school but they had products just in case any girls needed them but they were very very tucked away so that none of the guys would see them um and then at my high school experience I went to a Catholic school because that was just the most accessible to me at the time, but they promoted abstinence and basically showed us a video of a woman giving birth and told us that we wouldn't have to go through that if we didn't have sex. Um, so I definitely don't think any community in Canada has enough sex education 
period, I personally told myself or taught myself how to put in a tampon through YouTube. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's not only a disparity in health and sex education, it's also a disparity in education on, you know, what we're putting in our bodies. Like I've always been very interested um, when I did use tampons, I, I used uh, Playtex sports and I was always very interested in what products went in them because if I used panty liners, then I'd get a UTI and I was like, okay, well, maybe there's something in there that I need to avoid. Um, and so I'd, I'd scramble the websites of all these places and I'd see that they address um, the concerns of chemicals and stuff being in their products in FAQs and stuff, but they wouldn't list the ingredients. They'd say, oh, you don't have to worry about harsh chemicals. However, we don't have an ingredient list. <laughs> so there's definitely disparity, disparities in sex education in very, uh, in a broad sense, there, there's disparities everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, sex education can be very binary in school, like they don't broaden, like they keep everything separated, like you said. And yeah, you're right, they, they don't disclose a lot of information about what's going into our body for a lot of things, right? Um, they recently came out with, a, I think it was like a study about how fertility is like going down because of all the chemicals that the plastics that we're consuming that are found in a lot of our the products that we do have and we have to be a kind of more mindful about like I wish if they did give us this stuff then maybe we they wouldn't be able to sell it to us that well that's why they're not sharing with us but yeah like you you have a lot of insight on this stuff and I'm glad you're sharing all of that because yeah we did it is like that for a lot of us too education which kind of sucks a lot for sure and it feels like I don't know about anyone else, but I'm, I just kind of hear these vague things that are like, oh, like, you know, a lot of tampon brands, they have chemicals, which are bad. So then it's like, but then it feels like the only other option that's being promoted to me, you know, in terms of tampons is like ones that are like cardboard applicators or stuff like that. You know, the ones where it's like, you know, oh, you should use like a, an organic one or one that, you know, doesn't have these chemicals, but then it's like, I don't, you know, I don't want to use one without an applicator or without, with a cardboard applicator. And it's just difficult. And, you know, I feel like then it's just the easy option is the default. And, you know, I feel like I just don't even know very much about it or what is actually going into my body, but I also don't know a lot about, you know, what are healthier alternatives that are very similar you know? So yeah, it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's so strange. Yeah. yeah. I feel, oh, oh. <laughs> go ahead. I feel like I've been talking this whole time. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. It's so interesting to see you say, I was just going to say something off with Kyla. Like I thought as well, like if we don't know what's going in our body and our only other option is like sustainable options or like even like the diva cup, um, even when then like not everyone has the access to like period products and like able to buy more expensive products and usually the sustainable ones are more expensive and specifically um, with the disparities like in indigenous communities as well um, and the prices of menstrual products being so much more than um, menstrual products like outside of indigenous reserves um, yeah it's like it's so hard because it's like the government just really doesn't give you any alternatives um, and yeah, so I find that also kind of sad. Yeah, I definitely agree. And then um, on top of that, you basically, I think uh, the consensus is the options are either get a um, 
regular, I guess, quote unquote, regular tampon with a plastic applicator that you don't really know what is inside them. Or you get an organic tampon with a cardboard applicator that I'm not sure if any of you have used organic tampons, but they shed and are messy. They leave, um, I guess they don't have all the same chemicals that hold together the tampon as well. So they actually leave a bit of particles like Ooh. cotton inside of you. Um, so there's, there's definitely like, two polar opposites and then for people um that want to avoid using an applicator overall then there's also a, a, a lot of shame associated with women just touching themselves as if like putting in a tampon is any different from like picking food out of your teeth you know like you're <laughs> inserting <laughs> fingers into a body part yeah. and except for some reason there's all this shame associated with it you know yeah, for sure. Yeah, growing up for me, like if you use a tampon, then you're losing your virginity. Like, no, that's not. No. I had the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I do have a question, though. Like, is there um, I think businesses should be more responsible in terms of becoming more transparent about the ingredients that they put into their products and this actually just emerged originally from like consumer packaged goods. So this discussion um, emerged, you know, from plastics or, or where they would source their materials. And I think this discussion can be brought into period products as well. So um, I was just wondering if you had any sort of ideas or any proposition you'd like to make to um, businesses that create these products. Um, personally, I guess this is something that I've never really thought about too, too much, but, um, I definitely value a hundred percent. I value transparency and I'm a very conscious consumer as well. So I want to know who's working for the company, how they're resourcing their goods and everything. Um, and at the end of the day, if there is an option to DIY it, I feel more comfortable buying something buying a few things that I can do to make something myself. So if there were more um, maybe like pad kits where you could basically buy this kit of some sort of um, insulator where you could literally use any fabric that you want and make your own period pads, um, something like that along the lines of that, I really, really value um, transparency in products. So I would really love for more companies to be more transparent, not only about like the products that they use, like, or sorry, the ingredients they use, but it's really important to me to know mm. where the, the product is coming from and who is working for it and to make sure there's fair trade and everything as well. Mm. Um, so I guess that's important to me, but also, um, I'm trying to think I had a second point also, <laughs> Um, I guess that, yeah, just, just transparency probably and sustainability. Like you don't want to have a bunch more plastic in the ocean. Yeah, for sure. And like, I, I thought your idea of like the DIYing your period products is such a good idea also because, um, we want to break down that stereotype of 
period products and end up being so like foreign to us when we first use them. Like obviously, like when I first used a tampon, it was very daunting. It was a it was a pretty scary experience. Like and and I was always afraid that it hurt. So I think even just getting to getting to get to know like the period products and sort of deconstructing like what's inside of them could also help to become more comfortable in actually using them and I think even just incorporating that into modern education systems could also be helpful so I thought that was a pretty good idea the whole DIY thing that you brought up thank you yeah I I agree I really like that point as well and I was also going to say some uh, something that I really appreciated you mentioning that not only do we want to know what's in these period products but who's creating them as well who's producing them for us the whole idea of fair trade I think that's so important we live in like this era of globalization where I think you know like we get to enjoy all these products whether that's like food that's grown overseas and we get it here but like we don't know who the farmers are we don't know what the struggle of those farmers are mm-hmm. or if it's something like these products that are grown in factories mm-hmm. um, that commit severe human rights violations and we have no idea what those people are going through and yet we get to enjoy them being at such a low cost mm-hmm. so I think just the whole idea of like recognizing that there is um, fair trade that needs to happen as well I think that's so important as well and it's probably like I don't know like if it's right to call it a global crisis at this point but in some senses I feel like it should be something that's brought up more often that I think we need to be more conscious of um but yeah I really appreciate you bringing up that point and in terms of like creating DIY products I think that's so important as well and I um, every time we talk about um, something like creating your own peer products what comes to my mind is um, this man named Arunachalam Muruganathan, I'm so sorry, I probably said his name right, he's South Indian, but he made this machine in India that creates, that produces low-cost period products, uh, low-cost pads, and um, it, it's basically women that use this machine to produce and sell these pads, so not only are they earning money, but they're also addressing period poverty, and it's such an empowering thing. Um, we recently watched this um, documentary that talked about this machine and that kind of um, talked about uh, the whole process like women producing and selling their pads um, in the period end of sentence documentary. Um, So yeah, I think that's like, there's ways for that to happen. Like there's ways for DIY period products to be more popular and in communities where period products are expensive, bringing those machines and something similar, I think would, would be so great. Yeah, I totally agree, Jacqueline. Um, After watching that documentary, I feel like just seeing how long lasting the impact could be of machines um, that, yeah, women can sell the the pads that they're making and also to decrease the stigma in society about um, menstruation and women's health. Um, And I also love how Alexi did bring up like disparities in indigenous communities, such as like access to clean drinking water and food insecurity or menstruation. And um, I was wondering like what has been done to address these disparities in indigenous communities? And also like, what do you think should be done? Um, like the next cu- like steps? Yeah, so um, I definitely, besides um, 
women's shelters. I know there's a lot of Native women's shelters, especially in Toronto. Besides women's shelters um, giving out period products, I really didn't know much. So I did a bit of digging so that I could come prepared for the podcast. Um, but uh, I did want to mention about Indigenous um, women's shelters. It's very unfortunate um, that they really don't have access to uh, quantities. So when you go to a woman's shelter, whether it be short time or, or sorry, short term or whatever it is, they don't have um, a lot of access or sorry, they, they have very limited supplies and they usually don't really include high quality per period products either. Um, whether this means you have a pad that's really lumpy and it's uncomfortable or um, again, a tampon that sheds, <laughs> um, there isn't a, enough product to give away to everyone. I, I've heard um, other native women say that the upon arriving to a, a native women's center, they were basically given an option between a, a pad or a tampon and they were given one for their entire stay, which obviously shows how limited quantities are. Um, but I did some digging <laughs> and I found um, there is a beautiful woman named Nicole White. She's the founder of a uh, not-for-profit called Moontime Sisters, and it's a community-based group that collects feminine hygiene donations to distribute throughout Saskatchewan's northern communities. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a Vice blog post about her, if you guys want to look it up, um, but that's very interesting to me because it's specifically addressing the northern communities and we as discussed before there's definitely just more disparity in northern communities and northern communities often are um, given heightened prices and everything um, but on top of that um, there's also another non-for-profit called the period purse it's run by a woman named Jana I'm sure you guys are familiar with it it's very very popular she's done a lot of great work um, and she strongly values dignity, empowerment, and education. And to me, I love the fact that she focuses so much on dignity because there's so much shame around um, periods in general. Like from a young age, you're told to basically hide your tampon in your sleeve when you're going to the washroom. And I love the fact that she says that you can't address period poverty or whatever it is without addressing dignity. Um, so yeah, there are a few things happening to make sure that Indigenous communities do have uh, adequate access. However, I think the most important thing would just be, um, like, I'm trying to think of the word, not education, but there needs to be more word out. It's an issue that isn't talked about. Um, for one, it's a topic surrounding Indigenous communities, and that's already a really not not really talked about topic, you know, um, growing up in a city where I didn't have anyone else that was Indigenous around me, it was very surprising to a lot of people that I was Indigenous. And I also got interesting comments like, oh, I didn't realize that you guys still existed or something like that, you know, just really ignorant comments. So Indigenous communities and health disparities is already such a a, a closed topic that nobody really speaks about but then to add on women's health another topic that even with white women 
um, is a very not talked about conversation, I guess you could say. Um, so when you add those two and you create a double jeopardy, it's really, really, um, I guess it's, it's just vital to get the word out and to talk about it more and to educate people around you. Um, and when people are educated about certain topics, at least I know with me, when I'm educated about a certain topic and I know there's a disparity, it really motivates me to do better and rethink um, the systemic ideas in my head and try to make some sort of change. So I'm sure that if we start educating more people on these disparities, there will be more motivation for change. Yeah, I think that point on like advocacy and like, um, yeah, just addressing um, menstruation in Indigenous communities and also other communities as well, just, um, yeah, destigmatizing a lot of um, the shame that comes with having your period. And um, it's so cool you brought period press because I was able to work with them in high school. And I did really appreciate that aspect of um, empowering women and like the dignity aspect of that as well. And so, yeah, I loved working with um, Jana, yeah. Also, I really appreciate what, like how you brought up the idea of, you know, menstruation on its own is a taboo, you know, subject and there's a lot of stigma surrounding it. But then when you, you know, combine that with the fact that it's also have like people in indigenous communities menstruate as well, but then, you know, just any sort of issues or disparities surrounding, you know, Indigenous communities, it's so under, like, represented and talked about. And so the fact that those two things combined, it's just, you know, it's, it's so, like, I think surprising that more people aren't advocating for it. But obviously, you know, it makes sense that there are these issues. But it just takes so much, like, like what you said, education, advocacy, and just like giving, you know, the issue of voice and room to, you know, talk about it and figure it out. Because yeah, it's just, you know, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's hard to come from a position where, you know, obviously, you know, we all face stigma and, you know, anything like that for having periods. But I grew up in a family where, you know, tampons were just provided to me and it wasn't a big deal and I'm allowed to talk about my period and when I talk about my period people don't tell me to like not talk about it or anything like that so you know I think it's really important to recognize um different people's experiences and situations and yeah I just really appreciate you bringing that up thank you <laughs> yeah and like on that note like um, I think it's really important uh, what you said, Michaela, like just giving communities a voice and also just respecting the intersectionality of these groups as well. So we know that there's a growing importance of culturally appropriate assistance and treating or accessing these groups in a respectful way. And just going back to the community engagement principles from McMaster, um, just maintaining respectful relationships is really important, especially when we go into these communities that uh, we uh, are inviting 
we are invited to. So obviously, like we're not trying to force ourselves into it. So historically, we also know that the Canadian government um, has breached different forms of assistance towards the the Indigenous community over the years. So we were wondering um, if there is assistance provided to Indigenous communities now that are culturally appropriate and viable. Um, yeah, so I guess specifically talking about menstruation and stuff, I definitely think that um, assistance will never be culturally appropriate until reconciliation is addressed. Um, we can't really, you know, sweep everything under the rug when um, there's still uh, acts of genocide on Indigenous people, you know, like the most recent known, publicly known sterilization, forced sterilization happened in 2018 to an Indigenous woman, you know, so there definitely is, there's room for culturally appropriate um, assistance. However, I, I don't see um, it being able to be reached until the government addresses reconciliation. Um, on top of that, there's also an issue of trauma held by um, Indigenous people that menstruate. Um, I'm sure you guys know about uh, the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, Indigenous women have been over-sexualized <laughs> since Canada was colonized. <laughs> and um, I think that it's really, really important to have solutions that are non-invasive, that should be a really big priority just in case there is women that are um, survivors of whether that be sexual assaults or um, sexual violence, whatever it is, there should be non-invasive solutions um, when culturally appropriate uh, options are addressed and given out. And again, that's not to say that there can't be culturally appropriate um, or viable assistance until reconciliation is addressed. Obviously, um, both can be addressed at the same time, but I don't think that any attempts will be uh, completely meaningful until there is some sort of reconciliation. So glad you brought up reconcil reconciliation because over and over again, Canada has broken its promises. I think we're aware of the history of promises that have been um, broken, or at least we all should be aware of those. I think it's really important. And um, in terms of um, making sure that we are culturally appropriate and respecting cultural differences, um, I remember my Indigenous health prof once just saying that um, it might just be a matter of uh, kind of saying, okay, well, now I'm not going to go and help um, Indigenous people, but that I'll be ready to help them when they need me. So um, just like a matter of like thinking differently and um, ensuring that uh, we're like, you know, respecting Indigenous communities, um, I think that is really important. So. Um, in, in, so from your experience, are there any culturally historical or any cultural historical or traditional challenges that activists have to be mindful of when fighting peer poverty in Indigenous communities? I know you touched a little bit upon um, like what could be done. So while reconciliation is, um, we're still working towards reconciliation, what could be done by people like us, for example, small chapters that are um, trying to help? 
I know a lot of people want to throw like really sustainable options at indigenous communities. Um, I know a lot of people are like, oh, we can um, use period panties. I don't, I really hate using the word panties, but like <laughs> period underwear <laughs> um, or like reusable pads. These aren't always options because when you don't have access to clean water, you cannot use reusable products. On top of that, people really want to throw um, diva cups and uh, menstrual cups at indigenous communities as well, which again, you have to um, consider non-invasive solutions because sticking a foreign object inside of you can bring on really traumatic emotions. Um, and so I think I really, really like the idea of um, the community in India that you said empowered themselves by making their own period products. I think by taking production out of the hands of people making, you know, millions of dollars off of um, exploiting women, basically, by putting a pink tax on their period products and putting it into the hands of women that can... Um, to talk about periods in a safe space and also um, profit off of things and whether that be some sort of other solution or it be making their own tampons or pads. Um, I think that would be really, really important. I think that'd be an amazing program to have in Canada for Indigenous communities. Um, and I think that it's really um, not to like praise a man or anything, but I think it's really interesting and really great to have the support of a man. I know you said that um, it was a male that created the program in India. So I think having support from men in topics that are so taboo as periods is also really important and it's definitely needed in um, Indigenous communities. Right, absolutely. And like, I think the sooner we start to recognize that parents aren't only a women's issue, but rather like a health issue, an issue to do with the health of human beings, the better, like we shouldn't be dividing issues in terms of like, oh, this is a man's issue. This is a trans people issue. This is like a homosexual people issue, whatever the issue is. Um, the more people working to improve it, the better, the easier the solution will be found. And um, I guess the better the solution will be. So the more hands we have, the more minds we have towards any issue. I think, I think that's really great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're right. And thank you for giving us all this knowledge. Like you talk so well and I really, it was like really fun to listen to you, like share all of this and give us all this advice. So I was wondering if you do have any other tips for any listeners and for us um, to ensure that we kind of maintain our assistance to the indigenous community. Thank you guys so much. Um, I would say to just stay as educated as possible. You know, there's always going to be um, people that reach out to the Indigenous community and kind of demand education in a way to so that they can become allies. Um, but it's important to recognize that asking somebody for education in a racialized group um, it's important to recognize that it's not their job to educate you, um, which is one part, but even then a lot of people will be interested in educating you. However, you have to consider that asking people about colonization and residential schools or whatever it be in indigenous communities brings on a lot of trauma. 
So educating yourself, whether that be through taking Indigenous studies classes, I know a lot, I don't think I've ever had an Indigenous studies class at MAC that hasn't been led by an Indigenous person. Um, so taking Indigenous studies classes, um, being active in the community, there's a lot of community events in Hamilton that you can be a part of, you can um, volunteer at the Native Women's Health Center. There's a lot of options and a lot of ways to kind of educate yourself. I know there's a lot of really, really pretty and really well-made um, Instagram posts that like have all the wording and all the education on them. Even just posting those to your story so that other people can also be educated on them does a lot more than I think people think it does. Yeah, you're right. Like educating yourself is like going seeking the information yourself is a great way of making sure that you're respecting others and and also apologizing if you do make a mistake and accepting it like you that's how you learn stuff and you're not going to be perfect with all the stuff but thank you so much for sharing all this it was so great to have you on you're such a great guest and I hope that we can have you next time next year which would be great because you have so much knowledge. like you talk so well and you shared everything like it was just so good thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much guys it was such a pleasure to speak with you all you're all very well spoken to and I, I love the discussion that we all had it was a lot more I thought that I would just kind of be talking here about random stuff but this was a very meaningful conversation and I'm so glad to be a part of it Thank you for listening to the Period McMaster podcast. For more information, check us out on our Instagram, period.mcmaster, or email us at mcmasterperiod at gmail.com. Toodles!